My name is Rick Cleffel, and welcome to the show. Today we're talking with best-selling humorist and writer Christopher Moore. He's the author of seven novels, including Coyote Blue, The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove, Blood-Sucking Fiends, Island of the Sequined Love Nun, Lamb, or The Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal, and his latest novel is Fluke, or I Know Why the Winged Whale Sings. Fluke is a fascinating novel that's a definite change of pace from his previous in every sense but one. It's still laugh-out-loud hilarious. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, thanks. You started out your career with a supernatural novel entitled Practical Demon Keeping. What made you decide to wed humor and horror? It was something that I hadn't, I wasn't seeing um, done, and it sort of happened by accident. Um, I started writing horror stories um, in the 70s when I was in high school and, and, and in the 80s, and um, when I took them to a writer's conference and announced myself a horror story writer, people laughed at the way I turned a phrase, and I thought I'd just roll with it. So I, I, it just was something that I, I seemed to have an innate ability to do, and I thought rather than try and fight it, um, I'd, I'd go with it. Now, you've established a writing style in this novel that is really carried over with remarkable consistency throughout your work. Could you tell us a little bit about your prose style? Well, I think it's certainly not anything that I do consciously. If there's any overall tone to the work, it's I try to come at uh, come at it with a benevolence toward my characters. I sort of have a belief that what unites us all as human beings is that we're all flawed, and um, and so I write about people that are. Uh, overtly flawed but with with <laughs> uh, with I hope what I hope is some great affection and so I think that affects the tone of what I do more than anything so that that although it's humor and and satire and and sometimes uh, has an acerbic edge to it most of what I write you know I hope to come uh, I come at least my care at uh, toward my characters um, with uh, no mean spirit at all and so that that sort of dictates you know how the words go together Yes, I, I've noticed that about your characters. You really seem to like even the most despicable characters, as in your latest novel. Right. It's yeah. Even the bad guys, you have to understand they have a point of view. Um, I think that's more interesting, and it's uh, it's it's just something. I, I think I learned that from Steinbeck, who was uh, uh, his comic works were a great influence on me. Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday, and um, it's something that I certainly aspired to to do when I was reading his work. And although I don't think I write anything like Steinbeck, I um, that doesn't mean I didn't learn from what he did. Wow, that's interesting. Now, your prose is so packed with jokes, it seems like you're constantly tossing away these great lines. Do you collect and rehearse them, or do they just come to you out of the blue? Some things will come. Conceptual stuff often comes to me at any time, as you might guess. It's it's spurred by you know something on the radio or television or something I'm reading or uh, you know just a reaction to the environment, and I'll write it down. Um, a lot of the stuff of the humor that comes in the dialogue just happens on the page, and it happens. I don't know what's going to happen until the characters start talking, and it, and what they say is funny and manifested through through who they are. Um, that was uh, really prominent in. Um, my last book, Lamb, because that's a, the only first-person book I've ever read. So, or ever written, I mean. So, uh, um, Biff, the narrator of it, has a voice that that sort of supersedes mine, and he comments on the world a lot. And a lot of that happened spontaneously, um, as opposed to something that I had observed. It was also historical. This book, um, you know, the, you, there's all different kinds. One of the things is I, other than not wanting to be mean-spirited, I don't. I reserve I reserved myself to write any kind of humor. 
you know, even physical humor in, uh, in prose, which a lot of people say is impossible. Well, you actually managed to succeed quite consistently. They're very, very funny. Now, tell us a little bit about Lamb. It seems like a book that you'd write if you wanted to attach a large target to yourself. You'd think, wouldn't you? Um, because, you know, taking on, you know, an icon like telling the, uh, the lost years of Jesus Christ, uh, certainly uh, I anticipated that there might be some negative reaction to it. Um, what we found with the book now being out 20 months and in different uh, editions is quite the opposite. Um it's become a favorite among seminary students and Episcopalian ministers and um, Lutheran ministers. And I get I get three or four letters, you know, a day from people of faith who love the book. And um, it actually restored uh, my faith in the intelligence of the American people. I, I was great to, you know, hear from somebody in Oklahoma who was... Uh, who you would assume was not flexible enough to to be able to laugh at the possibilities of of Christ having a smart ass friend, um, and they write and say, you know, this was this was great. I enjoyed it. I had a great time. I gave it to my father, the minister. I get a lot of that. I gave it to my father, the minister. I don't know whether it's a means of getting back at their father, the minister, rather than just you know going out with the guy on the motorcycle in town. But uh, I get that letter about at least once a week. Um, so uh, yeah, I think when I wrote it, and there's a there's an afterword in the book that that anticipates there was going to be a backlash, but the fact is that there really hasn't been at all. Um, people like it. Now, as you go from subject to subject, how do you choose decide to hone your focus on on one subject or another? Well, I I sort of look at it as a way to. Um, indulge my attention deficit disorder. Um, a, a lot of, I think a lot of writers write about the same thing over and over again. I, I'm bored with it. I, you know, I, you know, wrote early on a book about Native Americans. Now people come up and talk to me about Indians and I, you know, oh no, I'm sorry. I finished with that nine years ago. I don't, you know, that you must be wanting to talk to somebody who's still concerned. Um, the, uh, I, I try to actually do, there is some sort of pattern to my madness. And what I'll do is go from a, th a theme-driven book to a, a concept or story-driven book. Uh, Lamb is a theme-driven book. Uh, Fluke um, is more of a concept or story-driven book. Um, I, I've been interested in marine biology for a long time. Um, I love the ocean. I love diving. And um, this was a way to, uh, to sort of become intimate with you with that subject matter and uh and learn about it and try to present it to people in a humorous manner which is just you know if i have any gift that's it is to be able to take material that's not necessarily or inherently uh humorous and present it to people in a manner that's you know both palatable and um and, and informative and and entertaining and so uh to indulge my own sort of curiosity and have you know a bit of an adventure too um in going and working with uh, research scientists in uh, hawaii um, I was able to, you know, come up with a story and, and write about a subject that's very far removed from, you know, first century Israel, you know, that my last book was. Now, this book also has, takes a very different tack for you because most of your other books have taken a supernatural subjects and woven humorous themes around them. Mm -hmm. This isn't supernatural, is it? Not really, but it's, it, it is, it's supernatural, but not magical, I guess is what, what it is. It's, it's, uh. You know, I, one of the characters in Fluke says, uh, "Magic is just science you don't understand yet," and uh, it, that's uh, this is 
supernatural in that the characters quite don't quite know what's going on, but there's nothing ghostly or um, ethereal or or godlike. Um, or well, I guess there is. It's just based in biology rather than uh, spirits. Now, could you tell us, without spoiling the book, because it has such a fantastic twist and turn to it, could you tell us a little bit about the central conflict in the book? Um, gosh, what is the central conflict? Why don't you tell me, well, since, the, since you're the reader and I'm the writer <laughs> and you're supposed to figure that stuff out? Well, for, for me, the, the fa- a fascinating conflict that you brought up uh, conceptually was the meme versus the gene. Well, that's, that's something that happens fairly late in the book, and it's basically um, exploring. When you go so far into studying marine mammals, you start to realize that what you have here is the animals that probably had the biggest brains earliest. Um, there's a good, ch- and this book focuses mainly on humpback whales and humpback whale song and the people who study humpback whale song, um, which is probably the first piece of culture that was on this planet. Um, a humpback, humpback whale song is, is the most complex piece of non-human composition on the planet, and it existed probably, we're guessing, um, 17 million years before there were any humans um, or in certainly Homo sapiens sapien um, and maybe as far back as 25 million years. So uh, you, you have to sort of look at the planet from the time that life started becoming, you know, big organic self-replicating molecules where everything was for the first, say, 3.5 billion years, all the information on the planet that was passed from living thing to living thing was done so through RNA and DNA. Suddenly, when you you have a self-replicating piece of information that's not being passed through RNA and DNA, that's something that rather than replicating itself is imitating, and that's called a meme. So a gene is the device by which life organically reproduces itself, and a meme is the device by which information reproduces itself and that's is something as horrible as achy breaky heart or happy birthday to you or um we're all familiar with a uh with a um computer virus is the easiest to understand self-replicating piece of information but it goes back as far as everything that you've learned um because you have this big brain that can imitate um has been a meme and probably one of the first complex ones of those was Humpback Whale Song. So rather than ruin the book by t- telling you how that becomes a conflict, when in fact it's just an esoteric piece of uh, information, um, I just make it a war, basically, between genes and memes. And you just have to figure out how that relates to people who were riding around in speedboats in the IO Channel off of Maui and poking whales with sticks. Now... Um, let's get back to <coughs> blood-sucking fiends. Mm-hmm. There's a vampire novel that's right. often a trap for most writers. There are mm-hmm. very few writers who write a vampire novel and come back from it and cannot don't get <laughs> detoured into a series. Tell us about the difference between your vampires and the Anne Rice dandies and Stephen King's monsters and how you kept from... Well, I, one of the things is, I, you know, those all existed when I wrote Bloodsucking Fiends. I was relieved of having to, uh, it was the trend, I wrote that in the early 90s, and it was the trend at that time in vampire literature, which is a subgenre of, of uh, horror fiction, to try and come up with the uh, 
the genesis of the vampire. And a lot of people were looking at AIDS because it was a blood-borne disease and so forth. And there were a lot of books that came out about that. And Anne Rice had already written this this secondary history and mythology um, behind the, the vampires, which is something that I had done with other subjects in my first couple of books. So I was relieved of doing any of that stuff. I already had all the rules set out. I already had all this stuff. You know, everybody, nobody had to be taken. And, and one of the things that I didn't like about a lot of horror fiction was that you always had these people who had lived in a cave their entire life and you know suddenly there's these puncture wounds on people's necks and people are dying of blood loss and everybody's running around going I wonder what it could be and I didn't <laughs> want to write that I wanted to write people who were pretty hip and in fact my vampires are reading Anne Rice trying to figure out how they're supposed to be vampires because um, they didn't get the instruction book and or they didn't have that convenient Dutch scientist that always seems to be in, in at least the Victorian vampire novels that explains everything and how you can kill them and how you can't. And so my vampires had to figure that out. So it simply became a romp for me to show uh, uh, some uh, a girl who got turned into a vampire without the instruction book and a kid who's come from Indiana to live in San Francisco and sort of become the new Kerouac in his own mind. And um, basically he just wants a girlfriend and doesn't really care whether she's dead or alive. Um, and uh, I, I loved writing those characters. I loved writing about San Francisco. Um, you know, you mentioned that it, it, I didn't fall into a series, but I'd very much love to do a series of Bloodsucking Fiends, not as my main career. I don't want to write the same book over and over again. And that's something I've, I've really made an effort not to do. But I'd love to spend more time with, uh, with Tommy and Jody from Bloodsucking Fiends. Well, they're certainly enjoyable people to be around. Now, tell us about a little bit about your first book. Uh, practical demon keeping because anybody who can bring in H.P. Lovecraft into a novel certainly deserves praise. Well, you know, when you write your first book, you're you're sort of you have no template. Um, you know, you can't imitate yourself, and you're and I was try- really trying to look to to do something that uh, I hadn't really seen done. Um, I'd seen it done in film, but I hadn't really seen it done in book form. And uh, I honestly had a goal with how I was going to approach this subject matter, and that was, um, I said to a friend of mine, in fact, I said, I want to do for horror what Douglas Adams did for science fiction. And, and that was a big inspiration for me. It was a guy that took all these concepts that were sort of accepted in science fiction and um, and threw them against the wall and made fun of them. And, and uh, so I started with that idea, and the story uh, re- revolves around a guy who basically has called up a demon some 80 years ago and, and has never been able to send it back, and he comes to this little town on coastal California, and uh, the book t- takes place in three days, and, and it's how the residents of this little town try to get rid of this demon. Um, very simply, you know, I, you go by the adage, write what you know. I had no money to go anywhere to research. I was living in a little coastal town on California. Every yesterday looked like every tomorrow, and I thought, what would happen if you shook things up, and how would you shake it up? And it was, let's drop a monster on these people and see how they react. Uh, it was very much a, a, a function of necessity that I wrote about a small town in California where every day looked like yesterday um, because that's what my life was. Now... Um, could you tell us a little bit about the part that research plays in your books? Because they all seem to be have a, a quite a bit of research behind each one. It, it, there's different functions for different books. Um, Lamb has a lot of academic research because it's a historical uh, novel. So I, I, I traveled to Israel and sort of looked at historical sites for a couple of weeks. But most of what came in Lamb is, uh, was you know history, sociology, 
you know, geography and all, and, and a lot of theology, uh, that came out of books. So, you know, that, that was a different sort of research than I did for fluke where I actually worked for three seasons with, uh, with marine biologists in Hawaii and observed what they did and try to sort of get a feeling for their, uh, uh, what their world was like, and um, similarly, uh, Island of the Sequin Love, and I lived with natives in Micronesia for a month or so. You know, not long enough that I, you know, became a native, but long enough to realize, you know, sort of get a feel for what their life was like. Coyote Blue, I lived on the Crow Reservation for a while and observed. The difference between that academically uh, researched book and one that's more of experiential uh, has two functions. One, uh, you, you know, I realized early on that as much as I liked writing, you spend an inordinate amount of your time sitting down, looking at a screen by yourself in a room. And it was all well and good to do that, but I wanted to actually have a life as well. And it seemed that the way to do that was to incorporate some sort of experiences beyond writing, real experiences, um, into my life with the research. So I picked my subjects, much like the Marine Mammal uh, book, fluke uh because i was interested in that stuff i wanted to go hang out with guys who you know action nerds i call them in the book you know marine biologists who will you know go into deadly waters and you know poke whales with sticks that seemed like a cool job and i wanted to see how it looked um and i wanted to you know see what it felt like so um uh my approach to research is you know i like to to give people stuff that they're not going to get somewhere else and, and of course present in a humorous manner but it also is a way for me to go live a life as well as you know putting little marks on a screen now you mentioned uh, coyote blue and one thing about that book that i just loved is the the humorous take on the entire castaneda mythos could you talk a little bit about that? you know what i i can't speak with any authority because i've never read castaneda you're a lucky man no, I mean, people uh, I people comment on that book all the time as if it's some satire of Castaneda. I have never read Castaneda. I've never picked up one of his books. I remember in high school, you know, every alienated hippie chick I went to school with was sitting on the floor in the hallways reading Castaneda and evidently getting something out of him, you know. Um, but I never read him. And so I came to the subject matter cold. And really, my goal with the Coyote Blue was to bring the trickster god Coyote into the modern world. And in, in fact... Uh, I, I was interested in a god that seemed to exist as an avatar of irony exclusively and uh, and I thought I want this guy how would he work in our world that seems it seems to me anyway that irony is the most powerful force in the universe and I thought it should act, definitely have an avatar and it and coyote is the guy to do it so I brought him into the modern world now tell us a little bit about how um, you use this a practical, down-to-earth point of view and combine it with supernatural effects to get humor. I think that that's what makes... Uh, hmm. If you start with a universe where everybody's carrying a lightsaber and it's normal to have anti-gravity belts and, you know, flit around with eight million different species and, you know, sp speak, you know, languages without having ever had to learn them... Uh, then you have to go a pretty long way for anything to be shocking or extraordinary. Um, and I don't know that we can relate to that. Um, but if you take a guy who works in a gas station and all of a sudden there's a giant monster that comes in and starts having sex with a tank truck in the, in the front lot, as I have in one of my books, okay, we can relate that that would be a, an extraordinary night at work. And, um, 
and that's I, I would have to say, you know, to, to give props, I probably became aware of that um, early on reading Stephen King's work. I mean, uh, his early stuff I read like I probably just as I was getting out of high school. And he would have these guys that worked in gas stations and people that you go, yeah, that's me. And that was the beauty of it is they were encountering things that were that really seemed supernatural because they were very much grounded in a reality that you can relate to. And I think that that's what I, I have to really do a lot of character work in my books because I'm asking people to believe all this really off-the-wall stuff is going to happen, but plus all this stuff is going to be very absurd and very funny. And so you have to you have to ground people and give them a place from which to react. So um, I, I do a lot of work in trying to make my characters very real um, so that I'm allowed to sort of trip the light fantastic in the humor and in the story. Now, speaking of Stephen King, one thing you've really managed to avoid is what we might call Castle Rock disease, which is setting all your supernatural events in one fictional locality. How did you do that? Well, uh, uh, it goes back to your question about about the research. Is you know when uh, I tell people I wrote my first book is set in Pine Cove because I didn't have any money to go anywhere else, and um, I wrote another one that's set in Pine Cove because I was up against a deadline and didn't have any time to go anywhere else. That's <laughs> Les Lizard of Melancholy Cove, um, and uh, so I tell people you see a book that's being set in Pine Cove. One of my books, I'm either broke or out of time. Um, and in fact, I w- I'm going to be writing a Christmas story um, for the end of this year that'll be released in Christmas of '04. That's set in Pine Cove again because they want the book in five months, and the only way I'm going to be able to write anything in five months is not to travel to research, but to re- <laughs> you know to look out my front window. So um, it 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 never really appeared to me as a trap. I really um, made a conscious decision to not want to write the same book over and over again. I didn't want to write Demon Keeping two, three, four, and five. Um, I will eventually, as I said, write a sequel to my vampire book because that was always planned. But I don't want that to be my career. I, that will be sort of a sideline of, of a story that needed to be finished. Um, I, it's, I just don't have an attention span long enough to keep on the same subject. So I'll, I'll go back to Pine Cove, but, uh, but only because there's a lot of characters I like that live there. Now, um, tell us a little bit about your forthcoming novel. What if you can? What you can tell us? Um, oh, the it's a Christmas book. That's really all I can tell you. And it's set in Pine Cove. I haven't written a word on it yet, so I can't tell you a whole lot about it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to sit down, you know, sometime after I get off this tour, and and uh, I'll know more. But until that time, it's uh, and it'll uh, reprise a lot of characters from my other novels, uh, from three or four different novels. It's sort of a gift to my readers who who want that sort of consistency. You know, they really like the guys that write the same book over and over again. And so you'll be able to find, you know. Um, uh, the Angel from Lamb. Um, in fact, the title of the book is The Stupidest Angel, so it's a, a classic, warm Christmas tale. And, um, you know, some of the characters from Les Lizard of Melancholy Cove and Island of the Sequin Love None, Roberto the Fruit Bat will be in it, by request. You know, it's uh, <laughs> all I can tell you is it's going to be, you know, a small pay, small hardback format in fourteen ninety five. That's what I know about it now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what writers do you read in your copious spare time? Um... I read pretty widely. I really look for and have been pretty lucky recently with finding guys that write, or I say guys, but but writers who write funny stuff or uh, satire. Um, my readers, I have uh, a sort of an open request to my readers that if you find something you like, let me know. I'll read it. If I like it, I'll put it on my website under Chris's Picks. Uh, um, and uh, so... I through that process I discovered and I can never say this guy's name right uh, Chuck Paluniak or the Polinic. guy Polniak, um, Polniak. the guy that did Fight Club and 
uh, Lullaby and, and uh, Survivor. He's, I think he's amazing. I, I read everything he does as soon as it comes out. I like Carl Hyacin, as you might guess. Um, uh, Dave Barry, Dave Sedaris. Um, um, I read, uh, I go back and read Steinbeck when I lose my way. Um, I read Shakespeare when I start thinking I'm actually fairly good at what I do. Um, it keeps me humble. Um, along with book tour, that's what they, that's where they send an author. If you actually start to develop self-esteem, they send you out on book tour to make sure that that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but, uh, let's see. Uh, um, I will read a lot of stuff that I don't comment on cause if I don't like it, I don't talk about it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, but those, those writers I mentioned, I like what they're doing. I like Jasper Ford's stuff. Um, I, I noticed that you'd interviewed him. Um, uh, Stephen, oh, the actor that worked with Hugh Laurie, what's his name? Uh, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry's stuff is funny. Hugh Laurie's book, The Gun Seller, is it's, brilliant. It's hysterical. Yeah. The Brits don't know that you're only supposed to be one-dimensional. You know, they have these guys who are brilliant actors and comedians, and then they write really good novels. You know, you know Americans don't do that. Our comedians just write fluffy sort of, you know, gimmick books. You know, yeah. we don't, they're not actually writing good novels like like some of the Brits are, but those are that's a pretty good list there, I'd uh, say. That'll keep my researchers busy. We've been talking with Christopher Moore. His latest book is Fluke, or I Know Why the Winged Whale Sings. My name's Rick Kleffel. You can find reviews of Chris's books at my website, http slash slash trashotron.com slash agony. Thanks for talking to us, Chris. You bet. <laughs> Take All care. Right.